This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our two-time celebrity guest scorer from Boss Locks Media, Walter Gaynor, back to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's great to be here. I like that two-time celebrity guest. (laughs) How are you tonight, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Excited to get into this movie. Uh, was immediately reminded of just how scared I was watching it the first time. Um, so yeah, happy to be here. Love uh, being in y'all's presence. Y'all are true movie critiques. I feel like a kindergartner when I enter y'all's <laughs> realm. We discuss the breakout film of 2017 in Get Out, written and directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya as Chris Washington, Zayland Adams as the 11-year-old Chris, Allison Williams as Rose Armitage, Bradley Whitford as Dean Armitage, Caleb Landry-Jones as Jeremy Armitage, Stephen Root as Jim Hudson, Lakeith Stanfield as Andre Hayworth slash Logan King, Catherine Keener as Miss Armitage, Lil Rel Howery as Rod Williams, Keegan-Michael Key as NCAA Prospect, Erica Alexander as Detective LaToya, Betty Gabriel as Georgina, Marcus Henderson as Walter, Richard Hurd as Roman Armitage, Geronimo Spinks as Detective Drake, Ian Castleberry as Detective Garcia, and Trey Bervent as Officer Ryan. Recognition for this movie? Get Out was wide released on February 24th, 2017. In March 2017, three weeks after its release, Get Out crossed the $100 million mark domestically, making Jordan Peele the first black writer-director to do so with his debut movie. On April 8th, 2017, the film became the highest-grossing film domestically directed by a black filmmaker, beating out F. Gary Gray's Straight Outta Compton, which grossed $162.8 million domestically in 2015. Gray would later reclaim the record two weeks later with The Fate of the Furious, which grossed $173.3 million on its 14th day. Domestically, Get Out is also the highest-grossing debut film based on an original screenplay in Hollywood history, beating the two-decade-long record of 1999's The Blair Witch Project. Get Out would receive almost unanimous critical praise and was included on most renowned critics' end-of-the-year top 10 list for 2017. The film earned four nominations for an Academy Award, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actor for Daniel Kaluuya. Peele became the third person after Warren Beatty and James L. Brooks to earn Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay nominations for a debut film and the first African-American winner for Best Original Screenplay, the fourth overall nominated after John Singleton, Spike Lee, and Suzanne DePass. I think I might have pronounced that wrong, but (laughs) moving on. In 2021, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay the greatest of the 21st century so far. Get Out also recently appeared on the latest version of the Sight & Sound Critics poll, Greatest Movie of All Time, at number 95. It currently holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, 
an 85 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, going back to 2017, this was the year of The Post, Logan, The Shape of Water, Dunkirk, which I thought was the best film of that year and still maintained was the best film of that year. Kind of underrated, in my opinion, if you can for a Christopher Nolan movie. The Darkest Hour, Spider-Man Homecoming, The Florida Project, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. But what about this particular movie made it stand out in a way that seemed to break through to pop culture in a way no other movie that year really seemed to? Well, first of all, that year really bothers me yet to this day because The Shape of Water, other than the fact that it's the best film I've ever seen about an amphibious man, it should not have won Best Picture. You clearly haven't seen Aquaman. Yeah, well. <laughs> <sighs> no, I agree. I thought Dunkirk was the best. I thought this was either, and I'd have to say it's either 2 or 2A, two because I really enjoyed three billboards as well. So I would say it's either 2 or, or it's 2A and 2B. I'd have a hard time. I'd have to really think hard about which of the two I'd rank. I would have put The Shape of Water even below Darkest Hour and The Post. But, okay. Anyway, what makes this so unique is because this is a double horror film. It's a normal horror film, but it's also the horror that black men and women go through in dealing with white society. And so it's a double horror film. It's a horror film within a horror film. And I think it came out about the same time people started paying much greater attention to brutality by law enforcement. I think that's what made this resonate. See, I wouldn't even put it close to the conversation of whether this supposedly woke up white America. What I can remember about the film is, is that it almost instantly got attention from all the critics. And then it started to kind of seep its way into just about everybody around me. And not even just like movie fans, just the culture at large. And I think it had to do with horror films is one of the few genres that seems to still make money from original ideas that weren't about comic book heroes. So it had that going for it. Blumhouse has a very good track record with a lot of their films and a lot of that having to do partly on the backing of this particular movie. But outside of that, what I would say about this film is I would also comment on the originality of the idea. A lot of the movies that we had about the racial overtone, and we still got a Best Picture winner the year after this for what would normally be considered a, I don't know, white savior, interracial buddy movie in the Green Book, which was controversial at the time. But this was of the moment. It was about something that felt of the moment, and because it felt like it was contemporary, that it was commenting on something that was real and wasn't just talking about, oh, all of the bad racists from the 60s, then, you know, this was at least something that I think more people could sink their teeth into and really felt was real to what they were going through in their lives, even though it was told through this entertaining shell. I mean, at least back in the 60s, the racism was overt, and you knew who the racists were, and they didn't hide it. Now you have these little subtleties that you have to kind of understand. 
And I don't know. See, I'm not even going to take it that far. Yes, you can understand the avout racists, like those that were in Congress that were constantly blocking stuff and the Dixiecrats and that sort of thing. But it's not like people from the North were necessarily blameless in a lot of their stuff by allowing the systems that were there to persist. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, as good as he may be on civil rights, was still somewhat of a racist and a bigot. I'm saying in general, because, I mean, now we have euphemisms where you're talking about hoodies. I mean, come on. I mean, it's stupid. We know what you're doing. Don't try to hide it. If you've got half a brain, you know what's going on. But it's even the microaggressions that you and I do that we don't realize that we're doing. And that's what this film really centers Mm -hmm. on. And so that's why I'm glad you picked this, Walt, because really, this is a movie that we need a different perspective on to be able to appreciate it fully. We can only comment on it from the white community perspective. But how did the, and I hate to make you speak for the entire black community at once, but how did at least the people around you take it back 2017 and maybe even now? Yes, as a representative for all black people, um, <laughs> playing. Um, I think unfortunately, um, you're my token black friend on the podcast tonight. I'm sorry. I'll take that role. I'll be the delegate. We'll uh, we're going to bring on more. I'm starting a campaign soon. But um, no, I think I think y'all actually really. Um, I loved hearing your perspective because actually I'm realizing now I've spoken to black people about the movie. But I've never really had an in-depth conversation with anyone who wasn't black about this movie. And so it was interesting to catch uh, y'all's perspective and what it kind of meant for y'all and things you picked up on. I remember (laughs) everyone's initial reactions and like, okay, so this movie took a a lot of people by surprise. We knew it was going to be some type of like horror kind of thriller type of thing, but it was Jordan Peele, Mr. Key and Peele. Uh, The movie he did before that was Keanu, which was ridiculous. I didn't even finish watching that movie, but um, yeah, we we know him for humor, just just not not horror at all. And so coming into this, I was like, okay, this is going to be exciting a thriller. But I'm so glad they had a little bit of humor in it because it made it bearable. I'm not a horror movie guy, but this movie was incredible. I think um, this movie brought a lot of the realities and experiences that black people face and like made that like a horror movie. Cause in real life, you know, it is horrific and it is um, uh, traumatizing and all these things from the very opening scene to the end, the whole time it just felt very realistic. Like even like even the hypnosis, all of it, I was like, Oh yeah, this, this could, this could happen to an extent. So yeah. And then also just the, the dialogue um, was interesting. Cause like you said, little, microaggressions or comments or things that um people feel are compliments are really just like okay (laughs) i mean nothing or can be insulting as well but um yeah everyone's reaction to this was um i'm glad i saw this with other black people (laughs) i remember i saw a friend it's like they went with some of their white friends i'm like yeah this is the type of movie where it's like you gotta sit with yourself afterwards and just reflect yeah i've i've uh know a lot of real stories that were portrayed in this film from interactions with in-laws to getting followed in a car. Um, haven't heard of anyone falling into the sunken place, but um, it, even that was referenced uh, later on. We'll get to that later, but this movie rep- was representation for us. 
Well, I just have to let you know that I would have voted for Barack Obama for a third term if he had had the opportunity. <laughs> Greatest president of my lifetime. <laughs> well, the one thing it noted to me is is that especially people who are trying to not, you know, like, I don't want to appear racist, so I'll overdo it to the point where it's almost reverse. You, you overemphasize it so much to not seem racist that you end up almost becoming more racist because you're highlighting the difference instead of just going and acting normal, which is right. idiotic. But I mean, I can see people doing that all the time when they go out of their way to try to show they're not. Right. It's like to, trying too hard to make someone comfortable. It just, it, it backfires. Everybody's uncomfortable. It, it kind of reminded me of being around women in junior high. <laughs> exactly. The statement that I love and I know they're just full of shit the moment I hear it, I'm probably the least racist person that you'd ever meet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I have yeah. high school friends that are cops now that I've heard that direct comment from who shall remain nameless. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Buddy, no. No, just, yeah. no. <laughs> but he does bring up an interesting point, Dad, that a lot of the story of this movie is Jordan Peele. And coming from a comedy background, I think everybody was taken aback that he was such a movie fan. And a lot of the things in this movie, and we'll get to some of the homages and things in the Did You Know section, are just things that would come from either you or I, if we were making a movie, certain things that he picked out of either Hitchcock films or he picked out of, you know, some of these big Spielberg films. And a lot of that felt combined and familiar, but fresh from a mind that we would expect to be a lot more comedic. But you have to understand that the comedic mind is not just all comedy. It's playing off of reality and drama as well. I mean, look at one of the, really, a, an actor who was absolutely zany, but had the ability to just play a significantly serious, dramatic part, Robin Williams. I mean, he had the ability to turn and to just become very serious. And I'm sure that part of Jordan Peele's comedy is based upon his study of man and humanity and what goes on in society. And he can just isolate that portion. And instead of turning it into something funny, turn it the other direction more towards horror. I think there are better commentators than I to be able to talk about that. There's a very thin line between horror and comedy. I think it's been said many times that comedy is just tragedy plus time. And a lot of it is dealing with the after effects of potential tragedy, such as, other than that, how is the play Mrs. Lincoln? A fairly common idiom, but is dealt out of basically a fairly significant historical tragedy. That being said, Jordan Peele, again, going back to him as the key, I guess, story or winner of this movie, I think at this point, other than Christopher Nolan, he may be one of the only directors that you throw his name up on the poster and it opens a movie. And it's probably going to get 50 to to $100 million without breaking a sweat. 
The only other one I could think of that would potentially be that would be Spielberg. No, because the Fablemans didn't do that, and neither did West Side Story. Well. Mm. The only other one that I could put in that class, and it's just because of his level of filmmaking, but he started to make movies for streamers. The last movie he made was The Irishman, which was on Netflix. And this year he's supposed to be releasing Killers of the Flower Moon is Martin Scorsese, but that one's going to Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah. Now, I mean, I love a lot of his stuff, and I was re- listening to a podcast on The Wolf of Wall Street, a movie we're going to be covering later this year. And that's a great film, and that had a huge budget, but was also a movie that made a ton of money because it had the Scorsese vice of it all. But outside of maybe that name, I can't think of another person that you can say, I know what I'm getting when I show up to one of his movies. Everybody seems to have small budget stuff. And really, that's why I think... IP has become the the brand name thing because everybody knows what to expect when they show up to a Thor movie or a Batman movie. They know what to expect when they get to a Jordan Peele movie most of the time anymore. So let's get some more background on this movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Chris Washington, Daniel Kaluuya, is a black photographer traveling with his girlfriend, Rose, Allison Williams, to upstate New York to meet her family for the first time. Upon meeting them, Chris senses the two, Missy, Catherine Keener, and Dean, Bradley Whitford, to be overly accommodating and nervous about dealing with their daughter's interracial relationship. However, as the weekend progresses, a series of increasingly disturbing discoveries leads him to discover something that he could never have imagined. So what is this movie actually about, then? We've gotten the plot... But I think this movie is about a lot more than just the basic blocking and tackling we just described. So, Walt, what do you think is this movie about? That's a good question, because I think you could probably get something different from everybody. I would say the relationship between different cultures, maybe the relationship that black people have with the world, actually. I'd go as far. Boy, I mean, there's... So many different layers you could go. I mean, the simple fact of how often uh, white America has appropriated black culture from jazz music to to hip-hop and whatever. Again, this is a situation where it's representative. They're, try- they're not just taking the individuals, but they're taking the, the very personage. It's kind of like if it, it represents... Almost that stealing of black culture by stealing the bodies of people. You could go that route. You could say that this is about fake white liberals who really are still racist, even though they pretend to not be. Um, You could say that. You could say that, again, this is just a straight horror film, and it's just a vehicle by how to present it in such a way that it fits within modern times. So there's a lot wide variation. I mean, this is a true onion film where you can peel layers and find something different. And I think you could probably interview a hundred people and come up with about 40 or 50 different interpretations of what's at the heart of this film. So if I said the term black exploitation, do either of you know what I mean by that? Yes. Okay. 
I don't remember in any of the very brief overview or study I've had of the period of movies known as black exploitation. If there were really any horror films, I know that there were a lot of crime thriller dramas. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of comedy within that subgenre of sorts, but I don't remember there being too many horror films. This would be one of the few that I would refer to and not necessarily in a bad way. Cause I think that that term often is said for like what maybe a, would be offhandedly thought of as a low budget, low quality movie. And I'm not sure that's always the case, but even so, I think this is somewhat of a black exploitation horror film because a lot of what is being portrayed is flipping the narrative on its head in horror films. And we go back to a movie we recently covered last year at the end of the year in screen, the horror movie rules. They don't explicitly say one of the bona fide horror movie rules, the black people die first in horror films. And the entire movie is about this guy, not necessarily being dead, but being taken over. It's like a, another version of the body snatchers. <laughs> and because of that, they're exploiting within the film, black people, not even in a subtextual way, but in a rather overt way. Now, a lot of that to get up to that point is subcontextual. But I want to say that a lot of what the movie's about, and I think this is why it resonated with a lot of people, is that even though it was entertaining, and yes, you could just watch it as a horror film, and I'm sure there are plenty of people that did that, this movie is really about the complexity of racism in the modern age when it doesn't come overtly from stereotypical people, such as rednecks, but often those who pride themselves as not being racist, white liberals. Well, and I can just point to the parallel One of the films nominated for Best Picture this year is Elvis. And if you watched Elvis, you'll see Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks. His whole concept is, is the minute I can find a white performer who can do black music, then I'll have success. Please stop. That that's so bad. That's worse than Tom Hanks. And he was (laughs) terrible. He got nominated for a Razzie. No. If you heard Colonel Parker, he had the impression down pretty well. Colonel or Tom Parker was a a nut. Okay, so Tom Hanks can do that the next time he hosts SNL because that's what that character was. Mm. Anyway, but that's that's the whole point. But no, regardless, that movie literally has a point in the film where B.B. King explicitly says, yeah, you can steal our music and it's okay with us. Except, mm. no, that's not going to be the case. That's not That's not true. Yes, okay? it was literally said within the film. I know it was. But uh, again, I mean, Elvis was the one who was able to perform it and perform it as it was actually presented. Because for years, I mean, Pat Boone's entire music career in the 50s was based upon taking black music, black hits that were on the R&B, and jazz circuit and making them white and then Pat Boone singing it and making it into some sort of like easy listening Sinatra, you know, snap your fingers type music. And so this has been going on. We, we just take stuff. And in this particular film, instead of just taking the culture, these people are actually taking the person. 
You know, another movie uh, to reference, you know, stealing black music. Uh, did y'all see um, Chadwick Boseman's film? It came out after he passed, uh, Ma Rainey's yep. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And it just yes. showed the whole time he was fighting to get this chance. And the guy just, like, took his notes, like, okay, cool. Then went over to his uh, group of white performers and then just instantly took it away. So, but yeah, I, I, I agree. And then while you were talking, I was starting to think about like some other phrases. Cause you're right. This is like an onion movie. And I was thinking some other phrases to just quick describe or words to describe the movie. I was thinking um, relationships still stick with that, but also inferiority power, and then also entitlement as well. From that line, when he was talking about, um, uh, his father, who was beat by Jesse Owens, he's like, yeah, he almost got over. And I was like, man, the, the entitlement, did that just set him on this whole thing? Like, I should have won this. Walt, is there any more clear definition of whitewashing of black music than finger-snapping music? <laughs> I can't think of a single black person that I would see finger-snapping along to their favorite musician. <laughs> it's rare. It's rare. <laughs> it just seems like the Carlton thing. I was about to say that, and uh, I just think about, I, I don't remember which artist, but I just see sometimes artists from uh, back in the day who were performing, and they did that, but you look in the audience, you're like, oh, okay, I see. So, yeah. Mel Torme used to snap and go, Scooby-Dooby-Doo. <laughs> okay, Pop. Anyway, let's dig a little deeper on this movie. Did you know? Writer, co-producer, and director Jordan Peele was inspired to write this movie by Eddie Murphy's stand-up film, Eddie Murphy, Delirious, from 1983. Murphy joked about horror films, including Poltergeist from 1982 and the Amityville Horror from 1979, and asked why white people do not leave when there's a ghost in the house. Murphy joked that if a black man was being shown around a beautiful house but heard a ghost whisper, get out, he would immediately tell his wife, too bad we can't stay, baby. Peel repeated Murphy's joke on the DVD commentary of this film. Did you know? The main theme, wow, I'm going to butcher this, but Sekaliza Kwa Wahega, I, yeah, that's my best uh, attempt at Swahili, was sung in Swahili with the exception of the English word brother, a word which composer Michael Abels felt had a special universal meaning among black people that did not need translation. According to Abels, the voices in the song represent the souls of black slaves and lynching victims trying to warn Chris to get away. The translation of the lyrics is, Brother, run, listen to the elders, listen to the truth, run away, save yourself. Did you know? Daniel Kaluuya was given the lead role on the spot after nailing his audition. Writer, co-producer, and director Jordan Peele said Kaluuya did about five takes of a key scene in which his character needs to cry, and each was so perfect that the single tear came down at the exact time for each take. Did you know? Jordan Peele said in an interview that Allison Williams reminded him of someone you knew and had a crush on when you met her at summer camp, and he thought this was a great quality for the kind of character Rose Armitage really is. Did you know? In an interview with Bradley Whitford on National Public Radio's show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Whitford explained that Jordan Peele wanted him for the role of Dean Armitage because of his prior role as Josh Lyman from The West Wing. Whitford said that Peele wanted all of the Armitage family members to have a distinct, quote, white liberal feel to them. <laughs> Did you know? Lil Rel Howery stated that real-life TSA agents constantly recognize him since the film's release. Consider this shit handled. <laughs> Did you oh, know? Man. 
The opening of the film is partially inspired by the opening of Halloween from 1978, which Jordan Peele described as a subversion of the perfect white neighborhood. Did you know? Director Jordan Peele asserted that the scene where Walter, Marcus Henderson, is running at Chris, Daniel Kaluuya, and the audience at full speed is a nod toward the power of depth in films. He specifically cited North by Northwest as an example of this technique, stating, Somebody running at you or towards you just creates a visceral and physical reaction for the audience. Did you know? Daniel Kaluuya has said that he can relate to the party scene. He states, That party scene was just like, oh, I've been in that party. I'm going to that party. Like, that kind of racism that isn't seen as racism, that isn't seen as kind of like mainstream racism. It's just life, and to explore that is quite an uncomfortable conversation, and Jordan just spoke his truth. He cinematically articulated an experience that millions of people go through, and they are made to feel crazy for going through that. But he just said, no, actually, you're not crazy. Did you know? When Jordan Peele was writing the scene where Chris is under hypnosis for the first time, he ended up crying. He states, There was a point in the process where I got to something that was very vulnerable. The fun evolved into tears. I mean, when I was writing about Chris in the hypnosis and the sunken place, I ended that day crying, and it was a cathartic thing. I wouldn't describe it as fun. Did you know? When writer, co-producer, and director Jordan Peele was asked if Universal Pictures wanted him to do a sequel to this film, he stated, Of course they have. It was the first thing they said. Let's do a sequel. He goes on to say, Honestly, I'm open to it. I love the project, but I won't do a sequel for just some kind of cash grab. If it's right, if it feels good, and I feel like I can beat the original, I'll do it. And finally, did you know? Around Christmas 2017 on Twitter, a user asked director Jordan Peele if the film was a Christmas movie, to which Peele jokingly tweeted back, Let's see. There's a man with a white beard multiple deer, a fireplace, a bunch of snowflakes, and a guy named Chris goes down a dark hole. I'd say go for it. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the most widely considered greatest film of all time for our 150th episode, Citizen Kane from 1941, written, directed, and starring Orson Welles with Joseph Cotton. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Gentlemen, best performance is up first here. Walt, who do you have as best performer? This was tough. This was tough. Um, I think Daniel Kaluuya did a really good job with that. Uh, his character, made him very relatable, believable, but I think I have to give best performance to the girlfriend rose um forget her uh the actress's name just because up until the point where she's like babe you know i can't give you the keys right i was like oh man she probably got hypnotized as well she doesn't know and then just the switch afterwards when she was on the phone with the uh, little uh howie's character that was that was impressive so i might have to i might have to give the best performance to her she is so flippin' hot in this film. I, wow. Well, you know, and if you were not aware, that's Brian Williams, the former NBC anchor, and then MSNBC anchor after he had his little issue with honesty. That's his daughter. We didn't really need that because at this point, she's bigger than Brian Williams. Yeah, because he's retired. And also, most of the people that saw this movie have no idea who's on MSNBC. <laughs> 
I mean, it's the exact point of going right at white liberals that we're talking about. Anyway, for me, this I'll make it pretty simple. Best performer is Jordan Peele. It's his brainchild. He crafted everything. He knew the tone. He got all the songs that he wanted. He knew how to craft the score in such a way. This was something he'd been thinking about for over a decade. He won the best screenplay, but I think a lot of people thought he should have at least really been considered for best director. For me, it's a pretty easy choice in uh, best performance for him. I agree. That's who I had picked as well. And so on that, I'll make the secondary performance, which is I had Daniel Kaluuya. Because I thought he uh, his, his being uncomfortable, unsure, his ability to express emotion and to like have that look of almost like what the fuck with most of these people within the film. I mean, you could read his face. That's how. And I thought his performance for that reason was very good. It was subtle. It would have been much more difficult for somebody. I mean, it would have been easy to become kind of cartoonish of like overreacting to what was going on around, but he played it so subtly and so well that you could feel for him because you'd see what he's going through. Leave it to you and your nomen in practice to make Daniel Kaluuya into a uh, coffee liqueur. Kaluuya, excuse me. Kaluuya, you did it again. Kal- <laughs> Kaluuya. All right. Oh, how did I pronounce it? Did I say Kaluuya? <laughs> no, you were fine. But uh, yeah, Daniel Kaluuya is a much different person. He goes great in a black Russian. I was about to say, he makes a good drink. I had him also as my best secondary performance. I, I think that the movie just simply does not work without his efforts. And there's a reason why he's appeared in two of the three Jordan Peele films. He's also now an Oscar winner. He's just got a charisma about him that's extremely likable, that you always want to root for him as the heroic character. But he also feels very authentic. Despite being British, he feels fairly stereotypical American. And so I thought the intensity with which he has to do things and seem very effortless, it's just not a performance that I thought a lot of people could give. That's a good point, because I remember uh, after the movie came out and you see more of the interviews, because that was my first introduction to him was this movie. And then finding out that he was British, I was like, wow. And then like you, that uh, observation that he was, it was very believable that, you know, he's a black American. That's That ended up being a lot of controversy later with his performance in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. So yeah, I think he's an incredible actor. I feel like with this movie, it was interesting, right? Because it was the stars like centered around him, but he, it was almost like we got to observe through his point of view everything else. Like him being a photographer, he really like got to show us everything that he was seeing in real life. So that was really um, impressive. So he has me at a secondary performance and a honorable mention to Lakeith Stanfield as well. Most charismatic, I had Allison Williams because again, she's so hot in this movie. <laughs> Uh, Again, I'll just make it very simple, but like she's infectious and there's a reason that you go home to meet her family and put up with all this bullshit because you're like, where are the white women at? Anyway. All right. Uh, Most charismatic for either of you. 
have a uh, Lil Rel Howery. I think, like I said, I I'm not a horror movie person. I remember in the movie, every time his teams kept came up, I felt relief. He was true comedic relief. I, that was needed to get through this. So Lil Rel Howery, his scenes were hilarious. Put some respect on TSA. He is a great tension breaker. For me, I have to go with my heart, Stephen Root. Oh God, he yeah. was so creepy in this film, and he is such a great character actor. I love him in everything he's done, from the TV show News Radio to his brief appearances on West Wing. His character on Barry, yes, Dodgeball. Um, this film, Brother, Where Art Thou? I mean, he is just phenomenal. He has such range. And he just came across as being just so incredibly creepy. And some of the lines he was given, I'm going to get to when we do our our, uh, our line segment, because they're just absolutely like, wow. Okay. Hmm. Which uh, What was his character? He was the guy that Chris was supposed to be transplanted with. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a guy who pops up in a lot of things. Like, he's a that guy to most people. But for Dad and I, because Dad has, like, a actor's crush on him, Stephen Root is a a fairly well-known name within our house. Even even to uh, office space, you see my stapler. Oh, my God, that was him? Yep, same guy. Wow. He he's also in uh, Barry as well, right? Yes, he's the okay, uh, yeah. contractor or the I don't know the manager, what you would call it, the guy. handler of Barry at, at least season one, and then so he's got comedic chops. He can play all sorts of different characters that way, but he can also play straight characters, and he pops up in a lot of stuff. He, he's just a guy that hasn't gotten a lot of recognition outside of one Dana Duncan. Mm. <laughs> yeah his role in this movie was really incredible because i was like the uh you know oftentimes we do like if you do find yourself in like an environment where there's a lot of people who aren't comfortable with black people there's usually that one person who is and that was him but then he ended up being a part of it as well it's like man it's, it's no no safe there Nobody's well safe. but it was the really telegraphed portion of that where you know that when Steven Root shows up, he's too big a character. And yes, most people don't know his name, but you know when somebody like that that you've seen in a bunch of other stuff, and not just these no-named white people that could be anybody's uncle, that he's going to have something more to do with the plot. And so even when he showed up the first time, I'm like, there's something more here with Steven Root's character. I don't know what it is yet, but something something's going down. He's not just here for five seconds. You know, I just realized because our first introdu- in the movie, he was introduced sitting in that that area where they ended up doing that auction thing. It's like, wow! Out of everyone, he was the most. He was like, ready to go. Let's get this on. I want to get my eyes and go home. Let's go to best scene. I have seven down. This film really isn't that long, so I think a lot of these scenes are a little bit elongated and can be broken up into neater piles, but. I'll go with meeting the parents. I'm just going to skip over like that opening scene because as creepy as that is, I I just didn't feel it was all that rewatchable when Lakeith Stanfield's on the street and even the drive there, I wasn't necessarily into it yet. 
for me, this movie really kickstarts when he meets her parents and then gets the tour of the house. Then I have Dinner with Jeremy with the UFC fighting. The first time he's in the sunken place, the auction, which I think is creepy by itself just because I still don't know how the fuck that worked. (laughs) When Chris finds the photos, which is a holy shit moment, what I will call the game room, which is him tied up in what had to be like the most privileged room in any like rich white guy's house. And then the final escape. Did I have any parts, I guess, I skipped over or that you would like to mention? It's funny. I think actually that opening scene, to, to me, I'd put that in the best scene because I remember um, that's when it felt very realistic. Like traditionally, a lot of horror movies, a black person dies first. And in that scene, when he's like watching that car, he's like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm out. And that's like exactly, it's just very realistic. And then he ends up getting uh you know abducted and everything but that whole time we were like yeah just go go don't don't mess with it just go forget where you're going you could come back later in the daytime so that was a that 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 scene felt very real as well so that's your vote for best scene that's the vote um i would have added the the very climactic where everybody seems to die at the end that was already in there well this i think you bifurcate that i think the escape itself is different than the actual the scene where the the car crashes etc but all right everything from where he hits jeremy over the head with the bocce ball up until he's driving away i think is one long sequence well i have as the best scene which is the get together in the auction because i think that summarizes just the sheer white privilege aspect of this film that just kind of these are a bunch of people who uh, have no real clue. I used to call, uh, especially certain liberals, which is I called them drive-by liberals, which is they would drive by certain neighborhoods and go, we need to do something about poverty in America. And that was their that was their idea, was is we need to do that. But it was always just driving by. And that's the attitude or the feeling I have here. It's people who just have this superficial idea of what racism is, and they think they can deal with it by making some comments that just show their complete ignorance. Well, that's made worse by the fact that those are the very same people that put the highways through black neighborhoods that allowed them to drive by in the first place. At high speeds, no less. Anyway. Did you mention um, the actual, like, get out scene? In that list? Not really. I wasn't sure how to quantify that because, I mean, that that one stretch there is maybe, what, three minutes where you get the revelation of the Flash and that kind of wakes up Stanfield's character. But I wasn't sure if that should be folded into a larger subset of the entire thing or not. Because that's all part of that, like, privileged party that kind of becomes the auction. Hmm. True. For me, the best scene by far and the one that I would return to the most on like YouTube and pull up because I just think it's an absolute masterclass in crafting a particular scene from the filmmaking to how every single moment of that is shot to the writing to all of the symbolism that leads up to that point is the sunken place. I think that is an absolute masterclass because it combines visual it combines sound it combines the psychological aspect that you've been given it combines the writing because 
as a person who's been through a lot of therapy in their life, I could very easily see how somebody is putty in your hands and you could just flip a switch and all of a sudden turn that on them. And uh, I just, I don't think Catherine Keener is as creepy as other people do, but I can see why you would after this film. <sighs> he changed my mind, actually. That That is the best scene. That was a... Uh... There, that was like uh, emotional. You've related to him. That single tear that got him to roll in the first place. That was all incredible. And you're right. When she when she hit the sink, it's like made her voice like deeper. She's like, "No, I'm not playing sink." That was like, "Oh, what?" That that actually was incredible. Both like cinematic and just just all, all the above. So I'm, I'm gonna change my vote. I'm gonna change my vote. I'll also reveal it's my favorite scene of the movie. It's the one that stood out the most for me when I first watched this. And I think it's also the most indelible moment for me because that first realization when he goes into the sunken place, I think is just so memorable comparatively to the rest of the movie. Dad, favorite scene? The escape itself. And and I'll point out there was a few things. The idea of using a bocce ball to escape. I mean... If there's ever anything that says white privilege more than a bocce ball, I'd like to know what it is. The lacrosse stick that Jeremy's holding to try and block <laughs> him from getting out? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's about right, too. That, that further. And then he he pans up and he shows the, the, the deer head. And you kind of go, the first time I remember watching it going, okay, why the hell are you showing a deer head? And then, of course, Bradley Whitford gets absolutely gored by that deer head and through the throat and bleeds out and you're going oh okay and so and then every aspect of that is you're rooting for him not just to escape you really are rooting for him to destroy them at this point in time and so i just thought it was for mayhem i guess (laughs) it was a fun scene because you really are feeling his desire to escape and yet to seek vengeance at the same time. And so that's why I picked it. This was honestly a tough one. And I feel like I just go back and forth. Um, But like, I think there's like a two or three, actually. One is when he steps outside to smoke right before he gets into uh, hypnotized into the sunken place. Um, The character, I think it was Walter, but the, the guy just started running at him in the dark and then just peered off. That one was like very creepy. I think one of the first like super creepy parts of the movie. And then um, also I just loved it because that and the next one I'll mention is um, on social media. That, that one, like everyone was just reenacting it afterwards on social media. Like that was just such a weird moment. And like, yo, what's going on? And people were acting like, oh, what if that actually happened in real life? What would happen? That, the um, Georgina... And sharing the no 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 when she like was apologizing for touching his things and he almost like broke her for a second and she was trying to just like say something and call out just that that scene but then I think maybe like the one that was just really stood out which is Lil Rel at the police station so I put that as favorite it was just hilarious because when he was telling the story for a second I was like oh no the cops actually gonna believe him then it's like nah he was once again comedic relief, but for the for them as well. So, little rough at the police station, but ah, oh, that that was a tough one. Tomorrow will be something different. I loved that scene, and that was that was close to being my pick because you could just see 
how uh, real police officers would relate to that because they would be like thinking that was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Most indelible for either of you. Uh, the video reveal for me. I mean, that. How how many times have you ever saw a film where they actually describe in detail, except like a Bond film, which is like they're doing the complete reveal while Bond's about to die. Do you ever see a film where they tell you exactly what's going on? And you see the whole thing where they're talking about how it's being done. And then the family all comes up and they wave in the film like, hey, we're we're manipulating the whole situation. And you're basically giving yourselves up so that we can live through you. I'll give you one. It's a Steven Spielberg film. Jurassic Park has a video montage at the beginning that does the entire exposition of how they can create dinosaurs. Uh, okay. But it's rare. No, there are a lot of bad exposition films. A lot of them are spy thrillers. Any film with a file scene in it where somebody is handed a file that they have to open it up and you're going after such and such person. Basically, a Mission Impossible film is like that. Every time he's given some spool or reel has a video with a talking head coming at him, your mission, if you choose to accept it. You know what, Dan? I'll back you up on this one, though, because it, it was really, I think it just fit. It just felt like you were in a doctor's office, like not just explaining the movie, but explaining the procedure. Such a interesting, like, I think they could have won Best Customer Service Award outside of, you know, getting this operation against your will, but... Yeah, it was a really great onboarding, <laughs> the whole video call between the two. It was funny. Uh, my indelible moment is the where the keys rose, like, because that was like a heart racing moment. And that's like that moment where it completely switched and you knew for certain she was a part of it as well. And I was hoping to see the brother and him go at it for real because it felt like we we're teasing up to that the whole movie. And then the mom just comes sink or I think that's what she said, sink. And it's just like, oh, man, it's over. But that that whole scene was just never forgotten. I was excited for that scene rewatching this movie like, oh, here we are. Here we are. On that same line, there's another indelible moment for me. And it's just because of all of the comments that comedians have made for the last seven years about Mike Pence. It's when Rose is sitting on her bed at the end and she has her headphones on and she's got this like plain white shirt on, but she goes to drink a glass of milk. To me, there, there's nothing more that says, oh, this person's white. than plain white button down shirt with your headphones on, not knowing what's going on around you and drinking a whole glass of milk. That's funny. I thought it was so strange just eating dry cereal. It's like the milk is right there. <laughs> just like one by one eating it. It gave me very like <laughs> serial killer vibes. Well, oddly enough, I know a lot of people that would do that. But anyway, we'll take our second break and we'll be right back. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. Lance Kerwin, 62, an American actor. He was primarily a child actor. He was in James at 15, The Loneliest Runner, and Salem's Lot. Uh, later in life, he became pastor in uh, a church in Hawaii. He passed away today, actually. Don Camburn, 93, American film editor. 
Easy Rider, Romancing the Stone, and Ghostbusters 2. He was also the former president of the Motion Picture Editors Guild, so he had a lot of influence within the editing community and was well known for the films that he that he was nominated for several Academy Awards. I don't think he ended up winning one, though. Uh, and then uh, lastly, uh, David Crosby, 81, American Hall of Fame singer, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. He was also in The Birds. Uh, many of his songs ended up becoming part of the movie genre as far as uh, soundtracks. And so we remember these here for their contributions to art, music, and everything in between with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. That takes us to best funniest lines. I will go first. Rod Williams. I'm T.S. motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation fucking handled. Jim Hudson. Life can be a sick joke. One day you're developing prints in a dark room, and the next day you wake up in the dark. Genetic disease. Same character, but uh, I want your eye, man. I want those things you see through. Missy Armitage, now you're in the sunken place. Dean Armitage, you're going to love this. My dad's claim to fame. He was beat by Jesse Owens in the qualifying round for the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Chris, where Owens won in front of Hitler. Dean, yeah, what a moment. I mean, Hitler was up there with all those perfect Aryan race bullshit. This black dude comes along and proves him wrong in front of the entire world. Amazing. Tough break for your dad, though. Well, he almost got over it. You know what I say? I say one down, a couple hundred thousand to go. I don't mean to get on my high horse, but I'm telling you, I don't like the deer. I'm sick of it. They're taking over. They're like rats. They're destroying the ecosystem. I see a dead deer on the side of the road, and I think that's a start. In Wisconsin, he'd be right. <laughs> you do understand that that had an alternative meaning. Yeah, that's why that, that really stuck out to me. I don't, I don't know if I caught it the first time, but rewatching it, I was like, Whoa. I've heard comments, unfortunately. Yeah, that one uh, kind of reminded me of... Oh, I'm drawing a blank of it, but yeah, no, that was, that was, that was a... Very well crafted in there. I'm out. Already? All right. Well, Andre Logan King, get out. Last one. Very simple, but, uh, oh, no, 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 no. I forgot the rest of what he said, but just that part there, that part there was, loved it. Yeah, I've heard no old black lady, at least in TV or movies, ever talk like that, and you knew something was up. <laughs> Rose Armitage, you were one of my favorites. Oh, yes. I have a bunch left here, so. Chris Washington, do they know I'm... Do they know I'm black? Rose, no, should they? Dean Armitage, by the way, I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I could. Best president in my lifetime, hands down. Had to get that one in there. Also a Dean line. Fire. It's a reflection of our own mortality. We're born, we breathe, and we die. And then finally, Parker Dre. Fair skin has been in favor for, what, the past hundreds of years? But now, the pendulum has swung back. 
black is in fashion. <sighs> I would have put the, is it true what they say? <laughs> oh, yeah, that whole, <laughs> that whole party has so many good lines and, from it. And to be Ooh, honest, it's true. It's well, true. that's exactly what I thought. The minute I would say that on this podcast, and it would be like it's an homage to Blazing Saddles. Yes, I'm sure it was. If you ask Jordan Peele, I'll say, I'll bet you he said, yeah, that's Blazing Saddles. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. I'll lead us off. For the industry, I think this has become a bigger film than it even was at the time. I think because of Jordan Peele's later importance that he's done two other fairly successful films, I wouldn't say that Nope was nearly as successful as this or as Us, but at least he's a name. I think that it's built up some additional legacy. I think if you were to ask some of the critics... At the time, it was seen as just kind of a commercial horror film, but it's kind of become a little bit bigger as time has progressed for a lot of the critics. The fact that it was in the sight and sound poll, the fact that it was voted uh, as one of the best screenplays of the decade. I think there's a lot more push behind this from a critical and historical standpoint than there was even at the time because while this was entertaining and was part of pop culture, I don't think the critical community caught up to it. And that's why it didn't do as well at the Oscars as it probably should have. From an audience standpoint, I do think that this has waned a little bit, only if that because of the genre, I think it's inaccessible to a group of people like myself that are just not going to rewatch this nearly as much. I think it still holds a significant cultural importance in the fact that we still turn out for Jordan Peele movies and we're excited every time he puts out a film, but it doesn't quite have the same effect because he's never been quite able, at least in my opinion, to live up to the original movie that he made and that was such a big deal at the time. And so I went with a five for the industry. I went with a four for the audience for nine. Well, let's go with you. For industry, I give it a, a nine. I think uh, all the same reasons as far as the pros and everything. But in addition to that, I think this movie really opened the door for, I think it inspired a lot of uh, creators. Um, I see a lot of movies coming afterwards, even outside of Jordan Peele's production, that just seem like not necessarily spinoffs, but like nods to Get Out. I think both the way it was filmed, Black people being the centric kind of characters or their experiences being cent- uh, centered, but not necessarily following a certain stereotype or traditionally how a black movie is quote unquote supposed to be. So I think that um, kind of broke ground for a lot of uh, uh, black directors and a lot of writers coming from it. So that, and then um, for audience, this is kind of interesting as well, because I agree with you actually. I think that this movie is it, still referenced to this day, you know, Kanye West for, Years we would say he's in the sunken place uh, with the Kardashians um, things. And we thought he came out for a little bit, but I don't know what's going on with him now. But maybe he's still in the sunken place or just went. I don't know what's going on. But I think it's just so many uh, references and using that movie to describe certain things. But at the same time, the rewatchability. I know other movies with like a lot of cultural impact, people have seen it at least three times but this movie i think there's a lot of people who saw it once or did not see it all just because it was a horror movie so for that i would give it a um a 7.5 still high but you know lower 
So you know this is one category out of ten, right? What do you mean? So we did five and five. Oh, so it has to be five the height. So you'll have to readjust those numbers slightly. To to we divide legacy, which is a one out of ten, into oh. half being oh. industry, half being public. Okay, so four and then a I'll do a three. I mean, if I were to take your original pieces, it would be four point five and a three point seven five four seven eight eight point two five. And that's only if I halved them to fit it within the category. I took math multiple times, so I trust your I trust your calculations. Let's just bump that up to an eight point five for you. Is that good? That works. All right. Okay. Industry, I think it's become much more recognized. Jordan Peele's, you know, it's had a lot of impact. I don't think it's completely impactful. So I went with a 4.5, just gave it a slight bump down for the industry for that reason. For the public, I agree with most of the comments you made, Tom. Because of the genre, there's a certain, you know, as we, comment often which is your mother is the average film watcher well to a degree she's she's the average film watcher for a certain subset of the public but i wouldn't say that she appeals to everybody she just has about as much knowledge as the average film goer yeah and what i'm saying though is is there's just a certain element of the public that's just not going to watch it because it's a considered a horror film and they don't like horror films and she being one of them. I could, you know, I told her <laughs> that I was going to watch it. And I said, do you want to join me? Well, no, absolutely not. I don't want to watch it. I said, well, it's not really that bad. It's somewhat intense. I can kind of give you through it, but, you know. So I went with a 3.5 for that reason. Uh, eight. That's an 8.5 average between the three of us. Impact significance, I went with the industry again, a 4.5. Made a lot of money for the initial budget. I guess the money aspect will lead more to the public, but the critics really liked this film, and it had, within that five-year, it allowed Jordan Peele to make more, to direct more films. It led to Daniel... Kaluuya? You going to do it the correct way? Kaluuya? Kaluuya doing more films and actually uh, winning an Oscar not too long after. So I went with a 4.5 on immediate impact. And for the public, I went with a 4.5 also, simply because it made so much money. And it was, I think it was a cultural phenomenon that people either saw it or they talked about it in its immediate release. So that's a nine for me. I went a reverse of this from legacy i think in the initial stages as i mentioned before the critics hadn't quite caught up to where the audience was but because this was such a cultural phenomenon in a way that only a few things have really caught fire the only thing that i can think of comparable to this as far as something that was really inventive and was about a cultural aspect that most white people in america didn't know is maybe like squid game from like a year or two ago but outside of that something that just like takes over the entire culture. I don't think there are many things like it. So I went with a five there. I went with a four for the critics for a nine overall as well. Walt, are you okay with the split category here? 
Five and five, total 10. The impact was incredible. I think uh, the representation part of it really definitely stood out and made an impact. And this movie definitely did something. So, um, yeah. All right. So that's a 9.33 average between the three of us. Novelty. This is a 10 for me. I'm not going to make this really all that complicated. I mean, you mentioned at the opening or uh, when we were talking best scenes, Walt, how Lakeith Stanfield potentially being kidnapped plays into the horror genre, but it subverts it by him popping up later in the film. And I think everything about this movie is subverting the horror genre, particularly as it applies to black people, even down to the name Get Out, which he is obviously poking fun at, you know, the stereotypes of black people in the theaters, always screaming at the big screen saying, get out, get out of the house or whatever else. And so I think that because this is inventive, that it's a completely new take on something that hadn't been done in horror before. And I think that's why it appealed to people. I give it a full 10. Like I said, I haven't seen like the ton of horror movies, but I just love the use of comedy in it. I think that was uh, new and refreshing for me. That that was the the comedy, like rewatching, I didn't laugh as hard as I did in the first time, but I still remember just like, like just before the relief, the relief from it. So yeah, I think that one, uh, a 10 for me as well. I think it's something that people will study in film school. A 10. I thought for quite a while about anything that I had ever seen that was like this. This is about as original and completely unique as any film I've seen. Yeah, there was homages to various other films, but I've never seen anything with this combination. This is very rare. I don't remember too many other films that we've given a full 10 for the novelty before. I think there might only be a handful, so this is rarefied air when it comes to this. And I think it's justified. Well, obviously, we just gave the justification for it. (laughs) I know, but I'm just saying that this is... I really cannot think of anything close. Again, because it's so subversive, I think... As far as novelty, I think I equally gave something like Scream very high marks, but I don't think it quite went this high because while it reinvented the genre and was able to poke fun at it, it didn't completely flip the genre in a way that was completely against your expectations. It did to a degree, but it wasn't, it was playing within the same parameters and the same rules that it had always done. And because of that, I don't think it it quite lived up to a 10, but this is something entirely different. So the only films that we have scored so far as a 10 for novelty, 12 Angry Men, Sunset Boulevard, Do the Right Thing, Network, Psycho, Rashomon, and Some Like It Hot. That's a pretty good list. So more than I thought, but still for this being our, I think 146th different film on the list or something close to that, being number seven as far as full novelty points, That's not a bad category for you. So obviously that's a 10 average between the three of us. All right, classicness then. This is a really hard one for me to judge. I started a seven as the neutral category. I think that this is going to age very well. And I think there are moments of this as far as like that opening scene kind of, not exactly the opening, but where there's the confrontation with the cop. I think that has aged extremely well. I think a lot of the white liberal racism that's in the movie, if I even want to go quite that far and just call it out and out racism, so much as maybe unintentional bigotry, 
I think that's aged pretty well. But I think because this movie isn't quite old enough to really get the timelessness points, and I had to really think, how old does a movie really have to be without having any major marks against it to be timeless? I'm thinking it has to probably be at least a generation, so 20 to 25 years. I think that as this movie gets older, the better it's probably going to perform in this category. But for right now, only six years removed, and I think we'll have the sixth anniversary next month. This is only an eight right now. (laughs) This was difficult for me because I really think that there is a change in the works as far as perception and what's happening as far as people's reaction, police confrontations, uh, what is acceptable or not acceptable, etc. And I'm hoping that in the future, people look at this and go, wow, was it really that bad at some point or at that time? I'd hope. But for the time frame, I'm going to go a little higher for classicness because I think it does speak to where things are. And it comes at a time when we're rethinking attitudes, police tactics, what we accept or don't accept as a society and as in the legal system. So I went with a 8.5 for classic. I'm going to give it a 9. I would have given it a 10, but I just know a lot of people who haven't seen the movie and still won't even, like Black people included. But I think that I gave it a 9 because um, uh, there, was, there was an interview with Chris Rock a year or two ago and he was talking about a lot of his old jokes still being relevant today and how it's kind of sad and i feel like um this movie as i was re-watching it there's just so many moments like when uh Lil Ro howie's character was referencing De- uh, jeffrey dahmer um and that was like 2017 uh, and then just this past year the whole just romanticizing of <laughs> jeffrey dahmer in that netflix series there's just so many moments that just still kind of relate. So I think this is a classic, will continue to be, and if it's no longer relatable, it's going to be a time period that really just speaks to what was happening in the moment. So, nine. So that's an 8.5 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. Let's start with our guest. This is tough because I think amazing movie, and it was easy to rewatch it when studying, uh, when uh, reviewing it, preparing for this episode, but I think like if I was to watch it again, I need to wait some time so I kind of forget some of the parts that are kind of terrifying. Like I rewatched it and the deer hopping out that that made me jump. And a few other moments I jumped, I forgot all about it. So I think I have to kind of forget about a lot of moments to truly rewatch it and get lost in it. So I'd give it a uh, six for that reason. I feel I feel bad, Jordan, for saying that, but a six just for that. The only real jump scare I had in the movie was when he goes downstairs to smoke that first time before the sunken place and Georgina walks past in the background. That was the second one for me. <laughs> yeah. Dad. Uh, 6.5, simply because, you know, I might sit and watch this once in a while, but again, this is something that I am not going to watch more than every four or five years because I need to forget parts of it in order for it to be enjoyable. If you can predict and know what's there, it's just not going to have the impact. And this is not a genre that I'm going to necessarily seek out. So I went with a 6.5. 
I also went with a 6.5. There are individual scenes that I could fire up on YouTube. Like I said, the sunken place is one that I could easily just study over and over. But sitting through the entire film is a little too intense for me most of the time. And having just covered The Shining, like this is at least five times scarier than The Shining for me. That one was much easier to watch. This thing is just intense from just about the word go. And uh, so I'd have a much harder time rewatching this than I I thought. Uh, Because the first time I watched it, I don't remember being quite this intense, but maybe it was where I was at in my head yesterday that it just felt more intense. Uh, But anyway, that's a 6.33 average between the two of us, or between the three of us, excuse me. So we had an 85% for Google users and an 86% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.55 audience score. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.5 for Legacy, 9.33 for Impact Significance, a 10 for Novelty, 8.5 for Classicness, 6.33 for Rewatchability, and an 8.55 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 50.21. And that would put it on our list between Aliens and Singing in the Rain. Oh, about as different movies as you can about imagine, but okay. Well, we have kind of an action horror film and then a classic musical. Hmm. It does kind of bridge the gap in a way. Very weird, rough transition, but yeah. Yeah, if only Daniel Kaluuya had sung and danced during this movie, we could make it comparable to both. Anyway, uh, remaining questions. Why the fuck would you keep an easily accessible photo box of all your past relationships? Oh my god. And the door was just open so many times, like... That's the other part of this, and that's where I truly screamed, get out. You are screwing for your life, and your inclination is, I see an open closet door, and I'm going to go investigate it when I'm trying to get out of the motherfucking house? Why would you spend another second in that house? Okay, first of all, as far as why would you keep a memory box like that? We're three guys, okay? Women do this shit. Okay, they will do the most bizarre things. I will not give examples because I could go some that would just send you into going like, what? Yeah. Let's not paint with a broad brush here. I think what it's supposed to represent is a serial killer vibe that always takes tokens from their victims. But she did say you are one of my favorites. Yeah, I've known multiple women who have kept some things like that and you go like, Huh? They might be serial killers. You should be lucky to be here with us today. Well, maybe. Considering some of the uh, situations that I've been in with those women. Yeah. Also, what chair from a rec room is going to have cotton stuffing? I don't know. I could see. Well, what do they use for cushions and chairs? Polyester. Oh, they, they sometimes will use cotton. I've seen it. Oh, I don't remember that, but I know specifically that they had to replace whatever material was in there with cotton because Jordan Peele wanted the image of cotton saving the black man. I remember days when he used cotton as fill in some of those. Also, how would cotton alone be good enough to work as earplugs? Without it being visible, too. Well, how the hell did he get them? Well, he pulled it out of the chair. Huh? No, he could lean down enough to be able to work it into his ears from the chair. 
The difference I think is, is one, I don't know how deep you're going to be able to get them. Two, you already mentioned how is it not visible to Caleb Landry Jones as he's trying to like put the stuff or like unhook him. And three, cotton alone is not necessarily a very dense fiber. How is that going to necessarily help plug your ears enough that you're not going to be susceptible to the whole hypnosis thing? Especially because there's an element of the visual there as well. And he clearly saw the teacup. Maybe it's a combination of visual and audio. Maybe it's actually just an audio and the visual just to fixate you, but you really need the audio to put you in the trance. But maybe he's doing, you know, I mean, how many times have you covered your ears and went like, you can (laughs) drown out a lot. All right. My next one. When he gets to the top of the stairs, he pauses. He's had all of this time to basically brain Caleb Landry Jones, which I still don't understand how the fuck he got up from that and had the audacity to be able to attack a guy. He has a pool of blood clearly visible on the floor. At best, he's got a concussion, okay, which would make him disoriented, and I don't know how he would clearly be able to attack anybody at that moment, but he he does the horror film trope. So if you excuse that, why does Chris just stop at the top of the stairs so that the mother can come out of nowhere to try and get after it? He then has to attack the mother, he has to attack Georgina, and he risks Rose potentially being there. Just get out of the house! I thought he was about to be on a rampage and kill everybody, but he didn't. He just left, and I was like, oh, but she, she's upstairs. But yeah, that, that a lot of questionable moments. Well, as, yeah, as far as the, the hitting and the concussion and such, I don't know. We have situations where... There are certain people who continue to play quarterback for half a game with serious concussions. So. Yeah, but your functionality is off. Yeah, I know. Anyway. My only other question. Did Rose die? Of course. Yes. She's going to bleed out. I mean, the brother should have been dead, so maybe, <laughs> maybe not. If you were to ask another great question, then, it's what is the next day for all of these people? Yeah, that's my one of my ultimate questions is, how the hell do you explain this? Yeah, because the house burnt down. Did it? Yeah. Oh, I guess it was on it fire was in on the basement, fire. so yeah, a lot of the evidence would be burned up, but like, his blood's got to be everywhere. Yeah. Do you see the alternate ending? So I knew that there was a an original ending where Chris gets arrested and is in jail, but then Jordan Peele switched it after the initial test screenings because it seemed like everybody needed a happy ending post-Trump's election. Well, and all some of the other police shootings. Well, and the fact that he thought that the effect of the cop car pulling up and then you getting the relief of it being Rod did just as well to kind of cement the effect of the cop car pulling up and your expectation being that he's going to be arrested. So another subversion of sorts. But again, I just can't imagine that all of these people dead on the side of the road and the gun being there with his prints on it is necessarily going to, uh, or for that matter, his finger marks on her throat is going to make for much sense to the cops. Well, there are other scapegoats. Uh, the guy who was the, the grandpa in the black man, he ended up killing her and then killing himself. So it could have been, they could have looked at it as a murder-suicide type of thing, too. I don't know. It, it still is going to be very fishy, but 
regardless. I, I think that would be a, a nice open-ended question. The problem is, is the sequel couldn't possibly be with any of these people. No. Maybe it could be like how it all started. There you go. Kind of a prequel-esque thing. Yeah. That or... Uh... Yeah, that's the only thing I could think of because it seemed very surrounding that family and their associates. So it's like they were the only ones who could really... It almost say that movie honestly felt like they closed it up outside of those questions like why this, why that, but like their family was a person who did the surgery, everyone had to come to them, they performed the whole operation and him killing them all seemed like it was like an end to that, but yeah, definitely not a Michael Myers that you can keep bringing back year after year. The question I had was, is, all right, let's assume that everything works out and they can figure out what exactly happened and how it happened and all this, and they believe everything. Andre Haysworth, the guy that was kidnapped at the beginning of the film, what happens to him? He's now married to this thirty, this woman 30 years his elder, and it's obvious that he's had this brain surgery where they've taken him out and put this other guy in. What the hell do you do with him? That's a good question. I know that was kind of an open-ended one for me too. Yeah, that's good. You have any others, dad? Nope. I don't. I, I, that one was the one that I went like, Hmm. Okay. Yeah, Cause he's likely to have another, uh, know a flash and just awake again and then what like what happens how long does it last i guess that's what i guess the sequel could be as well yeah any remaining questions for you walt no no all right well thank you very much walt for joining us we appreciated having you it's always good to see you yes thank you for inviting me back i'm uh i'm gonna come i'm gonna try to be that uh fifth ten time appearance to remain my celebrity all-star guest status and uh yeah challenge anyone who comes for my title yeah we uh, look forward to having you back for sometime hopefully later this year and uh we'll work with you on that but anything that you would like to plug in advance before you go no i'd say you know um reach out connect with me i love to meet new people say hello i'm on all the socials i'm either walter walter gainer the second or it's the great walt starting to offer some podcast advisory and coaching services because my life literally surrounds around podcasting now, both for my uh, day job and my evening activities. So yeah, reach out, connect, and if you have a podcast question, say hello. Well, I might have some podcast questions, but uh, I I think we're beyond hello at this point. (laughs) Anything for the pod, Doc? All right. Well, thank you very much. Dad, any remaining thoughts for the week? No, um, other than the fact that I just would comment, I happened to see a film that I saw in uh, some of the uh, press, and it was actually talked about in the New York Times on Sunday, to Leslie with Andrea Riceborough. It's a very low-budget, minor film. Minor film is giving it a little bit too much praise. It made $36,000. Yeah, well, it made uh, $36,006 after I watched it over the weekend. I thought it was a a very solid film. 
Uh, I thought she was phenomenal. And I thought, you know, I, I've seen Mark Marin in various other films where he's kind of okay. I thought he did a really good job. I think he's a better actor than what I thought he was originally. And so I would recommend it's it's relative it's like six dollars to rent it on Amazon or Apple Plus. If you were looking for a film, it's not like a real feel-good film, although it has some elements of happiness at the end as it kind of resolves some of the problems. It's worth watching. It's a solid film. And I would recommend people look at it. And we'll talk more about the Oscar nominations of which she just got nominated, which is part of the reason why the film is even coming up for Best Actress. But uh, we'll discuss that on next week's show when we have a little bit more time to kind of go through all of the Oscar nomination discussion. As far as final thoughts for me this week, I have been watching a lot of stuff. (laughs) I can't even remember all of the things that I've seen over the past like week and a half or so. So maybe some of this is probably best left towards next week with our 150th episode. So I guess I'll just kind of pause on this and uh, we'll have some more comments for next week. Sound good? All right. So with that, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I don't think there's one word that can describe a man's life. Next week, we are discussing the most widely considered greatest film of all time for our 150th episode, Citizen Kane from 1941. Written, directed, and starring Orson Welles with Joseph Cotton. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.